Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the second Sunday in Lent. As we said last week, Lent is the six Sundays before Easter when we prepare ourselves to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because as we said last week, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, it's good in direct proportion to the bad news of our own sinfulness. The more that we can focus, the more we can be aware of our own shortcomings, our own failings, then the better the news of what Jesus has done for us. So in these weeks of Lent, if you remember from last week, we are taking a a good hard look at some really bad characters in Scripture, some people who make terrible, terrible choices. And we're taking a good look at them so that we can take a good look at ourselves. We can ask ourselves, okay, what it, like, how am I like them? How have I also done these same things? So last week, we did, we did uh, Cain, if you remember, who I said, I figure you probably know who that is from the story of Cain and Abel. This week, we're doing a man named Korah. And if you don't know who Korah is, that's fine. He's not nearly as well known. His story is told in the book of Numbers chapter 16. So get your Bible, turn with me to Numbers chapter 16. While you're doing that, let me just give you a quick sort of historical update where we are. Korah's story takes place after the Israelites leave Egypt. They leave, if you remember, because Moses leads them out. They're slaves in Egypt, they're being oppressed, but Moses leads them out. And if you know the story or you you saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, God just does all these incredible, miraculous things through Moses to get them out. Korah is actually one of Moses' cousins. So he's that same generation. He's about as old as Moses and Moses' brother Aaron is. And he comes out with Moses and all the rest of the Israelites. And they spend a number of months, maybe almost up to a year, uh, camping and walking. There's a lot of them. But eventually, they end up camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And on the western side of the Jordan River is the land of Canaan. And that's where they're going. That's where God has said he's taking them, to Canaan, which is a land, God says, of milk and honey, where they'll be free. They'll be able to live their own lives. They'll be able to worship God. They'll no longer be in bondage. And so they're there, camped on the shores of the Jordan. And Moses, in preparation, again, there's probably about two million people at this point that have come out of Egypt. In preparation for bringing all these people into the land, he sends out a number of guys as spies. You know, they don't have maps, they don't have satellite images or anything. He's like, hey, go tell me what's out there, right? Tell me where the cities are, tell me where the roads are, tell me where the people are. We got to map this place out so we know how we're going to come in. Well, the spies don't come back and bring a map. They come back and bring a warning. They say there's no way we can ever take this land. It's already full of people. They have huge walled cities. They have iron weapons. They have chariots. There's no way we are going to take this land. We should turn around and go go somewhere else. And that report spreads throughout the whole camp. So when Moses gathers everyone and says, okay, now let's go. We're going into the land of Canaan that God is giving us. It's called the land of milk and honey. People say, no, we won't go. You're crazy. We've all heard the report. They'll kill us. They'll slaughter us, our families, our kids. No way. We're not going in. And so God says, okay, if you don't want to go in, you don't have to. We'll just camp out here on the other side in the desert. And we'll wait for 40 years until this generation, all the adults who didn't want to go in, until they've all died. And then once they've all died, God says, then I'll, I'll let their kids go in if they want. And if you were here last fall when we did the story of Joshua, that's exactly 
what happens. So our story in number 16, it takes place sometime after that. Now we don't know if it's six months after they refuse to go in or it's six years after they refuse to go in. We're not told. But sometime later, we read the story of Korah. So follow along with me in your Bible, Numbers chapter 16. Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. He will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers and tomorrow morning, put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle, to stand before the community and minister to them. He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your fellows have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields or vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. The Lord said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron, each man is to take his censer and put incense into it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present censers also. So each of them took their censers, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared in the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, oh God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. 
As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, and all those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished, and they were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. The fire, then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains and scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy. The censers are the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censer into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and they have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eleazar, the priest, collected the bronze censers brought by those who had burned, who'd burned to death, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except the descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of God appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I could put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. So we find out at the beginning that Korah is a Levite. That means he's one of the people who is in charge of the religious life of the nation. Um, and we actually know more about him because he appears early in the story. As I said, he's a, he's a cousin of Moses. And so he, he has been around this story for a long time. He is actually one of the leaders of the Levites. God had told Moses to take Moses' brother Aaron, and Aaron and his sons, they are the leaders of the Levites. And again, there, there's tens of thousands of Levites at, at this portion. And those guys are all, they're, they're, they're all like the ministers. They're all like the pastors for the entire congregation, the whole people of Israel. Aaron and his sons, they're at the top. They are in charge of the Levites. But under them, the Levites are divided into divisions where the different divisions have different roles to play. And this man, Korah, he is one of those leaders of those divisions. So if this were a company, Aaron and his Aaron would be like the CEO. His sons are the, the C-suite guys. They're at the top. And then Korah's right below them. He leads a division. He's a vice president, whatever we want to call him. But Korah, we're told, gets together with a couple other guys. We'll talk about them in a minute. And he comes against Moses and Aaron. And what he presents is compelling. He gets 250 of the community leaders, the, the council leaders, the, the people who are sort of in charge of everything, the guys who are under Moses. He gets 250 of them to go along with him. And this is what he says to Moses and Aaron in verse 3. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Now, those two statements, they're 100% true. The Lord is absolutely with the whole community. The whole community is holy. That, that's all throughout Scripture. But then he makes this accusation. Why then do you set yourselves up above the Lord's assembly? He says to them, hey, we're all equal before God. Who put you in charge? 
Well, of course, the answer is God did. But, but that's what he says. He raises an issue of justice. He raises an issue of fairness. Everyone here is equal before God. Why are you in charge? But flip over a few verses to when Moses goes and talks to him privately. That doesn't come out as much in the text, but the pronouns are all singular. And he, he's talking just to Korah. This is not everyone else. And he says to Korah in verse 10, God has brought you and all your fellow Levites near him, but you are trying to get the priesthood too. You know, it turns out Korah's issue isn't actually justice. It's not actually fairness. That's what he says. That's what he's presenting it as. Oh, this isn't fair. You're, you're putting yourselves above other people when there's no reason to. This is unjust. That's what he says. But the truth is, it's jealousy. He is one level below Aaron and, the, and his sons, Aaron's family that's in charge. He doesn't want to be one level below. When Moses says, you want the priesthood, the priesthood is Aaron and his family. That's what they're called. They're the priests. They're at the top. And Moses says, it's not enough for you, the position God has given you. You want, you want it all. He's, it's not an issue of justice for Korah. It's jealousy. But oh, isn't it so easy to make that little jump from I want this to it's not fair that I don't have it. How often have you read about a lawsuit or something going on where the person says, it's not about the money, it's the principle. Yeah, it's the principle that I need to be given all that money. This is so easy to do. It is so easy to go from jealousy, from coveting, from wanting something, just to take that little step to, oh, it's not fair. This is justice. I need to fight for this because the scripture says that. The scripture says we should fight for justice. There's absolutely injustice in the world and we should oppose it. And so we just make that little tiny step from, oh, you have that and I want it, to, oh, this is justice. I can fight to get this. And that's what Korah is doing. We see that when Moses talks to him and Moses lays his actual motives bare. Moses tries to talk to the other two ringleaders, these guys, Dathan and Abiram, but they won't even talk to him. And this is what they say. Oh, isn't it enough? You brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. Now you want to lord it over us. You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Now that's great. Remember where they were. They were in Egypt. They were slaves and being killed. Moses led them out to freedom, and he tried to bring them into a land flowing of milk and honey. But they wouldn't go. They refused. And they have completely inverted reality. Now they're saying, oh, we used to live in a land of milk and honey, but you took us out and enslaved us. The total opposite is the truth but they have rewritten history in their own minds so that now suddenly they're the victims. Moses has harmed them instead of the truth that Moses saved them from death and slavery and they refused to go in. They're doing very similar to what Cain did last week. They made a terrible choice and they're blaming someone else. They're playing the victim. They're refusing to accept what they did. So what happens 
They've said to Moses, hey, who put you in charge? Why should you do this? And so Moses says back to him, look in verse 28. This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do these things, that it was not my idea. Like that's exactly what they've said. Moses, why should we believe you? Who put you in charge? And Moses says, hey, here's how you'll know. And then he says this just incredible thing. He says, if the ground opens up and swallows these guys, then you'll know that I'm telling the truth. Because that's pretty impressive as a sign. There's no way Moses is going to make the ground open up. You know, if they're thinking, oh, Moses is making all this God stuff up, I don't see how you can think that after everything you saw in Egypt. But again, it may be 10 years later. We don't know. Maybe they've forgotten. Moses says, well, I'll tell you what, here's how you'll know that these guys are treating God with disrespect and with contempt and that I am doing what he says. If the ground opens up and swallows them, then you'll know that I'm telling the truth. That's an impressive proof to lay out there because there's no way Moses is going to make that happen. And look at what verse 31 says as soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split open. Exactly what Moses said would happen. The ground opens up. They and everything they have disappears, and then the ground closes back up. Moses says, well, okay, Korah, okay, Dathan, okay, Abiram, okay, all of you guys, you don't believe that God has spoken to me with everything you've seen, so I'll, have, I'll ask God to prove it to you, and he does. We're told afterwards in 35 that fire comes from the Lord and consumes the 250 guys who were going along with Korah in this rebellion. What happens to Korah? and all his followers, is that they die. That's where this goes. Like, what begins is just jealousy of, oh, I don't want to be tier two, I want to be tier one. Where it goes is death. And don't miss what the text explicitly tells us. Back up in verse 27, Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrance to their tent. It's not just these couple guys who die. Their families die too. But their families weren't guilty. Their wives weren't plotting rebellion, or at least the text doesn't say so. Their little ones, their infants, their babies certainly were not doing this. But they die too. Because church, your sin hurts everyone around you. Never believe the lie that, oh, well, okay, maybe it's wrong, but I'm not hurting anyone but me. That is a lie from the evil one so that you will not realize that your sin destroys everyone around you. It is not just you. It is not just Korah who drops dead. It is not just Korah and the other ringleaders. It's not just Korah, the other ringleaders, and the 250 guys who agreed to this. Their families, their property, their livestock, anybody who happened not to have moved away from where they were, everyone dies. That's where this goes, because that's where sin goes. Sin leads to death. You've read that probably in the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. If you work for sin, it repays you by killing you. And that's exactly what happens to these guys. Now, the story ought to end there. It ought to end at verse 40. These guys have all died. They've taken censers, which are basically bronze pots with a stick that you can offer incense on them. They've taken censers and presented them before the Lord, and now they've all burned to death. God says, take all those bronze censers and hammer them out flat and overlay the altar with it so that anytime anyone comes in to the, the tent of meeting, anytime anyone comes in to make a sacrifice, 
they'll see all that bronze overlay and it will remind people, okay, God set this up. God said, this is what the priests do. This is what the Levites do. This is what these folks do. This is God who has done it. That's where the story ought to end. But sin and rebellion aren't like that. They don't end like that. Look at what happens in verse 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. Now, how in the world can you think that? Do you think that Moses made the ground open to kill these people. He, he just he told them exactly what was going to happen. These guys are treating the Lord with contempt. They are rebelling. I say it's wrong. He sets up a test where it is impossible to happen unless God is doing exactly what he says. And the people, they are scared. They are freaked out. They are angry. They have become a mob. We're not even in the realm of anything close to reality anymore. They have become a mob. And what happens? Almost 15,000 of them die as well, because that's what sin does. It, it, it extends itself in a web. It swirls longer and longer. It's like you know dropping a pebble on water. What happens? The ripples go out. That's what sin does. This started with one guy, one jealous guy who found a couple other rabble-rousers who were mad at the bad choices they made but were unwilling to admit it. Instead, they're going to blame somebody else. He gathered them. He raised it as a, a justice issue, an issue of fairness that must be fought for, and then he got a whole bunch of community leaders with him, and all of them died, and their families died, and almost 15,000 of their fellow Israelites died because that's what sin does. It causes destruction. It brings about God's wrath. And it all started with one guy, just one jealous guy who led us step by step down this path. The end of this story, he's dead. He died back when the earth swallowed him, but people are still dying the next day. Because of what he started. That's what sin does in us. So remember, we're looking at these guys so we can look at ourselves. So let me ask you, is there any Korah in you? Is there anything in you where jealousy rises up? And then you just take that one step over to, oh no, I mean, I'm not coveting this. I'm not jealous about this. It's fairness. This isn't fair. This is justice. We need to fight for this. Church, if you ever need to justify yourself to someone by saying, it's not about the money, it's about the principle, I'm willing to bet it's probably about the money. Is there any Korah in you? Is there anything in you where you want something and God just hasn't given it to you. That's what happens to Korah. He wants to be the priest. He wants to be on top. He's not. God has put him a level below that. And that's not going to change. It's hereditary. He's never going to be a priest. His kids are never going to be priests. That's not going to happen because God set it up that way. He doesn't want that. He wants something else. And so he fights the justice fight in order to get it. And he destroys himself his family, everyone around him? Is there any Korah in you? 
Is there anything in you where jealousy goes into, oh, I have to fight for this? Because you're doing what the scriptures tell you not to do. The scriptures tell us, don't covet. But we still covet. The scriptures tell us, be content. But we're not content. The scriptures tell us, look, accept what God has given you. Accept where God has placed you. Accept God's roles for you. But we don't. And we're not. We covet. And it is so easy to turn that into a fight. And we know we can't fight over our jealousy. We know that's not right. So we call it justice instead. Is there any Korah in you where you want things? And so you're going to fight, and you're going to gather people around, and you're going to spin it as if it was about fairness. Is there any of his associates, Dathan or Abiram, in you where you've made some bad choices, but you're going to blame somebody else? You're going to say, no, you, you did it. You're going to rewrite history that again Like that little step from jealousy to justice, that little step from it happened this way to, oh, no, I think it happened this way. That is so, so easy as well. It is so easy to rewrite history in our minds so that we're the victims, so that someone else harmed us. It's not that I made a foolish choice and I need to own up to it. Oh, no, someone tricked me. Someone fooled me. Someone did something bad. Is there any of these two guys in you, Dathan or Abiram, who are rewriting history to make it as if Moses has harmed them rather than the truth, that they chose poorly and now they are reaping what they sowed. As we examine ourselves in this Lenten season, as we take a good, hard look at ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, Is there any of these guys in us? Because again, as I told you last week, I have the advantage of I I sit with this passage for a week or so ahead of time. And so I know this is in me. I know I do this. I know how quickly I go from being jealous and wanting something to to spinning it in my mind to where, oh, it's about fairness and justice and I I have to fight. Of course, I don't really, I don't want to fight. I have to. It's justice. And I know how easy it is to rewrite history in your mind, to make someone else, it's their fault. It's not my bad choice. I'll just flip everything around. Instead of you did good and I responded foolishly, I did good and you harmed me. If you see any of that in your life, let this story be a huge warning to you. You know, I told you last week, Moses has to like step out of the flow of history in Genesis to show us what happens with Cain and the choices he makes. Moses doesn't have to step out of this story at all. It happens the very next day to Korah and his associates. It happens to the community just one day later. Nothing good comes of this. Nothing good comes of jealousy and coveting and wanting things and then turning it into some big justice fairness fight. Nothing good comes of rewriting history in our minds because we did something foolish, but we're going to blame someone else. It leads to death. That's what happened to these guys. It leads to death. That's what happens to all of us. That's why Easter is such good news. Sin doing these things. They bring the wrath of God. That's what happened to them. 
the wrath of God came on them and swallowed some of them up. The wrath of God came on others and fire burned them up. The wrath of God came on the community and there was a plague and thousands died. And the message of Easter that we're preparing ourselves for is that the wrath of God came on Jesus. That, that all of this, all of God's anger at people's sin, it all came on Jesus. That's why we stand here before him now. It's not that we did it right. We didn't. We're just like these guys. What we're preparing ourselves for is to celebrate that Jesus did everything right. And then God did all of this to him. All of his wrath poured out on Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to repent of these things that I've seen in my life. And you repent with me. If there's Korah in your life, then repent. If there's these other guys, Dathan and Abiram in your life, then repent. And then rejoice as well, knowing about the truth of Easter, that the wrath of God has been satisfied by what Jesus did. So pray with me. Lord, I confess, I do this. I can think of examples. I can think of times when I have done exactly this. I have been jealous. I have wanted something, and I have spun it in my mind to make it a fight about fairness where I had to. I had to go and oppose this person and take something from them, not, not because I was jealous and wanted it, but because it was about justice. Lord, forgive me. I know I have Dathan and Abiram in me. I know that I will rewrite history in my mind, that I will do something foolish, and I will rewrite it in my mind to where someone else harmed me. It's not my fault. Lord, forgive me. Forgive my brothers and sisters. I know people listening to me, I know we all have these problems. We're no different from these guys 3,500 years ago. We still act just like this. Lord, please forgive us for the way we do these things. You have told us to be content, not to be jealous, but we don't obey. You have told us to to be honest and to confess our own sin, to acknowledge our own mistakes before you, but we won't obey. Lord, forgive us that we are still like this. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have taken this for us. That, that, That Korah, that he paid. He paid for his sin. The earth swallowed him up. God's wrath came on him. But I will not pay for my sin, though I have done things just as bad as him. I will not pay because you paid, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for all my brothers and sisters who name you, who say, like we talked about those weeks ago in Corinthians, who say that you are Lord, Jesus. All of us who name your name, all of us who claim your salvation, thank you. Thank you for what you have done to us. We, we remember, Lord. We see our own sins still, and we remember the good news of Easter. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, always. Amen.